Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Voters across New England went to the polls, and many didn't know what to do. Some people were going to call me an idiot if I voted for one person. Some other people were going to call me an idiot for voting another person. If I didn't vote at all, I was un-American. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We heard lots of voices like this one, but people did show up to vote, clogging polling places with long lines and record turnout, driven not just by candidates, but by ballot questions. I don't see any difference between, you know, recreational alcohol use and recreational marijuana use. I feel like it's the same thing. But we know you'd probably like to get away from polls and politics for a few minutes at least. So we'll take you to Portland, Maine for some Delta Blues. Big black men came into town and there weren't no other black folks around, but he stuck around with nothing to lose. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Let's begin with a voice that might just sum up this amazing week of election news. Lourdes Maldonado is a voter from New Hampshire. Thank God for my son that is keeping me sane, my sanity. Because otherwise, every morning I get up and I watch the news and I'm going crazy. Crazy indeed. Reliably blue New England turned several shades of red on November 8th. President-elect Donald Trump picked up an electoral college vote in northern Maine and essentially tied Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. That state and neighboring Vermont picked up Republican governors, too. Now, Republicans also took some hard defeats. Kelly Ayotte lost her Senate seat in New Hampshire, and Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts worked hard on two ballot initiatives. One passed, one didn't. He lost both times. Both Maine and Massachusetts passed ballot measures legalizing recreational marijuana. In Maine, that vote was very close. Meanwhile, we saw long lines at polling places and very high turnout. We're going to turn now to a few of our reporters who covered these issues and talked to voters, and we're going to start up north with the two states making the biggest national headlines and seeing enormous spending on TV ads. Fred Bever reports for Maine Public Radio. Emily Corwin is from New Hampshire Public Radio. Welcome to Next. Hi, John. Good to be here, John. So, Fred, I'm going to start with you, and we're going to start at the national level because, well, as we were looking at the map of the United States, as we all have for such a long time, with the overwhelming support for Donald Trump across many parts of Appalachia, parts of the South, parts of the West, and, uh, and even parts of the upper Midwest, it's something that we saw really strongly right there in Maine, too, didn't we? Yes, we did, particularly in Maine's 2nd District, which is the northern and central and western part of the state, basically from Lewiston up and west and over to uh, Bar Harbor and Callis uh, in the, the far east. It went for Trump. It split off its single electoral vote that it gets. As you probably know, John, the way it works here in Maine is the statewide winner gets two of Maine's four electoral votes and the winner in each district gets one. And this has never happened. 
that, in fact, one vote split off. Donald Trump won the second district, 51 to 41 percent, while Hillary Clinton won the uh, first district by a slightly larger margin. Uh, She took the statewide vote, but he got that, that single electoral vote. And that's why we saw Donald Trump here five times. It was not only one of his paths to victory, but it was ripe for the plucking for him because residents of of that part of Maine are white, they're working class, middle class, and they have feel that they have been left behind. They have seen the jobs in the timber industry, the forest products industry, the paper industry go away, go overseas. They feel betrayed uh, by international trade. And they uh, have also been contending with uh, influx of immigrants, particularly in the Lewiston area. The the governor here uh, certainly trades on anti-immigration uh, rhetoric, and the you know, and he's the governor here for a reason. Because like Donald Trump, he's got very strong support in the second district of Maine. And we'll talk about how some of the really interesting ballot questions in Maine played into what happened at the national level there as well. But, Emily, let let me turn to you. You were talking with with voters in the state, and you were watching as New Hampshire had these very important high-level races for governor and Senate, as well as a hotly contested race for president. Uh, Much along the lines of what Fred was talking about is, were you hearing from people in, in New Hampshire that they were being left behind economically, that they felt like it was time for a, a change of some sort? I, I heard a lot about change here in New Hampshire. I think, you know, compared to Maine, New Hampshire has overall less of a sort of e- an economic division. People here have a pretty high quality of life comparatively. Median incomes are quite high compared to the rest of the country. But uh, people are frustrated. Uh, you know, those those sort of mill jobs, the North Country went red. Um, and also the southern part of the state where where we know that a lot of people move from Massachusetts, commute down to Boston, but you know may not feel at home in the Massachusetts sort of uh, culture. Um, those went that that southern part of the state went red as as we expected. Um, and and you know when I at Trump rallies talking to people, uh, there was a lot of um, feeling that Washington is not working, that it is not representative of uh, voters here, and just an angst and an anger and just a desire to see something new. And so often I heard people sort of not so much endorse Donald Trump as endorse this idea that that they just want to see something different for once. And take a risk, too. I I think that, uh, interestingly, that the Clinton campaign sort of tried to stay away from saying, hey, he's a risky bet, instead saying he's a dangerous bet. And I, I talked to, to, to many voters who said, look, we don't know if he's the best guy, but he's better than, as Emily says, the D.C. establishment that has done nothing for us, and we're willing to take a risk. And if four years from now it doesn't pay off, well, then we'll look in a different direction. In talking about these results, what, what I think about is, you know, being at polling places and just hearing so much indecision. And I'm not surprised that it's so close. I thought, John, maybe I would quickly play for you, you know, some sound from a polling place from a woman who was just, you know, she sounded kind of tortured having to go to the polls and make this decision yesterday. So so let's hear, hear a bit of that. I take it you just voted? I did. How, how does it feel? Um, mixed feelings, I guess, today. Why is that? Because I really didn't know who to vote for. Wow, you like I felt like I was a, some people were going to call me an idiot if I voted for one person, 
some other people were going to call me an idiot for voting another person. If I voted a third party, I was an idiot because I was throwing away my vote. If I didn't vote at all, I was un-American. You know, uh -huh. a tough election this year. That was Kirsten Snyder, uh, and, and I talked to her in Nashua, New Hampshire, and she said this is the first time she's ever uh, done a write-in. She, she wrote in Evan McMullen, um, the conservative independent from Utah. And, and I just, in talking to her and hearing her sort of thinking out all of these scenarios, the results from last night just make more sense when I think about, about her position and how many people may have, have shared that. But but this is interesting, Fred. So uh, we're hearing this voter from New Hampshire. I've heard from voters in Massachusetts, in, in Connecticut, in Vermont over the course of the last day or so, all saying some version of the same thing. But how do we square that with the fact that people turned out in such high numbers? They were saying, I wasn't sure who to vote for. I, I'm not even sure if I had a good choice. But yet we had long lines at polling places all across New England. Why, Fred, do you think that happened? Well, partly it was who they wanted to vote against. But I do think there's there's also just a, a confluence of interest that 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 really did bring out, again, this this uh, stronger than expected uh, Trump votes uh, here in Maine. You see it on the minimum wage that the state voters voted uh, with a pretty by a pretty healthy percentage to, to raise the minimum wage in the state to uh, twelve dollars by the year 2020. And that's an issue where. Who was the strongest candidate on that back during the primary season? Bernie Sanders. And Emily, you may remember that back during the, the New Hampshire primary, Sanders was pointing to uh, a lot of polls that showed he had the best chance of beating Trump. And here in Maine, you have more voters voting for the minimum wage than you do have voting for Hillary Clinton. So that shows you that some of those Trump voters were voting for the minimum wage uh, to go up as well. We spoke to, to one uh, Republican uh, senator in the state of Maine who won re-election this year who's, who spoke to that. His, his name is Eric Brakey. Donald Trump is speaking to a lot of the very real frustrations that people have, people who feel disenfranchised. I think that you know Bernie Sanders was doing a lot of the same thing to a kind of different group of people that were feeling, I think, a lot of the same problems. Emily, did you hear people who were Bernie Sanders supporters who were uh, maybe feeling disenfranchised by the choices they were ending up with because uh, Sanders from nearby Vermont had an awful lot of support in New Hampshire. He, he did. And, you know, the, the New Hampshire primary really showed how much support he had. I think a lot of people are going to be looking back and wondering, you know, how things might have gone differently. Um, but honestly, here I heard especially right after the primary, there was, you know, what, what may have been a little bit of grieving for, for Bernie Sanders. But by the time the, the general election came around, uh, you know, out at these campaign events, I, I, I did not meet a single person at a Trump rally who had supported Bernie Sanders. Um, I, I met a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters at uh, Clinton events, however. But I do think, you know, some of this sense, maybe at the polls that, that I saw and that many people saw of of hesitance, uh, conflictedness, uh, write-ins, third parties, maybe that was that was motivated by that um, Bernie Sanders support that we saw early on. You, you know, Fred, you mentioned though some of the ballot questions that uh, Mainers got a chance to vote on. Some of these questions were really important and maybe also played into the outcome that you had. One had to do with ranked choice voting, something that maybe more people in America are going to be thinking about over the course of the next couple of years, and another one having to do with guns and background checks. Do you think that those questions played into how people were thinking when they went to the polls? The gun control question certainly did. Uh, it's a, it's an open question whether 
Uh, Trump voters, uh, people who Trump turned out also voted against a a universal background check measure that was on the ballot here in Maine. The gun control measure did go down. Uh, It it had been polling uh, to win. And and you can imagine that the the rural areas where there's a strong hunting tradition uh, really played the the central role in defeating that measure, uh, as it did in helping Donald Trump to win the the second district of the states. Maine was also part of another nationwide movement uh, during Election Day, and it had to do with a ballot question about legalizing marijuana. Uh, That ballot question in Massachusetts, a very similar one, passed it's a very, very close vote in Maine, which maybe tells us something about uh, how people felt about that particular measure. What did you see in, in that ballot question and how Mainers were approaching legalization, Fred? People were, were making very personal decisions around it. Would I want my kids to have access to edibles? Or am I really libertarian? I just don't think the government should interfere with this. Or or is it fair that, that uh, you know marijuana crimes can, can result in uh, such hefty sentences while, while other... Uh, equally benign behavior, as someone might see it, uh, it goes unchecked. Is that something that, that came up at all when you were talking to New Hampshire voters, Emily, the fact that the two neighboring states there to, to the south and, and directly to the east, is this something that uh, New Hampshire residents might be taking up sometime soon as well? Uh, certainly as um, other states you know, move forward with recreational marijuana, I think like other things, it becomes easier uh, for, for perhaps lawmakers to consider. Um, and, and, and there's you know, there's going to be a bill to consider it here for sure. And of course, one of the things that uh, makes people want to consider this is the idea that you can uh, legalize it and then tax it and gain revenue. And as we know in New Hampshire, you guys don't like to tax anything. Uh, I, I will interject, though, though, John. If New Hampshire likes to tax anything, it's it's the uh, those kinds of things. It's uh, cigarettes, and uh, we have a lot of income from alcohol, and uh, what what do you call them? Sin taxes. So, so I wouldn't throw that past past Granite Staters. Thanks to Emily Corwin from New Hampshire Public Radio and Fred Bever from Maine Public Radio for keeping us up to date on what's happening in the northern part of our region. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, John. Coming up, we'll move to southern New England and find out about voter turnout in Connecticut and Massachusetts. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. I don't see any difference between, you know, recreational alcohol use and recreational marijuana use. I feel like it's the same thing. Now you put it in a situation where you're um, not only taxing people on it, but you're also keeping it away from people who are under 21. That was Lori Lenski and Joseph Gleason, two Western Massachusetts voters, at the polls on Tuesday. In that state, the ballot measure to legalize recreational marijuana passed 54 to 46 percent. That state's other hotly contested ballot measure, which proposed lifting the state cap on opening new charter schools, went the other direction. We'll have more on that in just a bit. But first, we wanted to hear more about what was on the minds of Southern New England voters and some of the problems they encountered at the polls on Tuesday. I'm joined now by Cassandra Bassler. She's a reporter for WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut, and Shannon Dooling, a reporter for WBUR in Boston. Cassie and Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thank you. Thanks, John. Shannon, I want to start with you. You were out around Massachusetts and New Hampshire for a project called Election Land, and you were talking to people at polling places. You were trying to gauge how long the lines were, trying to find out whether or not people had access to the vote. 
So two questions for you. First of all, what did you see while you were out voting? And then what were you hearing from people as you talked to them on this really important day? As far as what I was seeing at many of the polling places, long lines in the mornings, both in New Hampshire uh, and in Massachusetts, some folks in New Hampshire were telling me many of the polls up there opened at 6 a.m. Uh, and, and many of the, the poll moderators said that they had lines of people out the building and around the corner uh, before 6 a.m. As far as uh, sort of problems or issues that arose, there were almost 500 nonpartisan, well-trained election protection volunteers throughout Massachusetts. And they were, were reporting in real time any issues that they were seeing as far as people not having a, a sort of clear path to vote. Uh, and one of the main complaints or obstacles that I heard from uh, those monitors yesterday was about Massachusetts early voting ballots. This is new for Massachusetts this year, of course, the first year that we've instated early voting. And it was a huge success. You know, almost a uh, a quarter of the the state's population, I believe, turned out in early voting to cast their ballot. The the problem came from two things yesterday. One was that when people cast those early voting ballots, they were folded. The individual ballot was folded and placed into an envelope, um, and and put away, uh, so to speak, to be counted on election day in the person's precinct. And so, what was happening on election day, while poll workers were monitoring what was going on on the ground and, and kind of taking care of day of voters, uh, they were also in the meantime trying to feed those previously folded ballots into the counting machines. This proved to be pretty tricky, <laughs> and and the the ballot machines weren't counting these accurately. Uh, I spoke to a moderator in Lowell who said she uh, expected to be up counting many of the early voting ballots by hand because the counting machines weren't registering those folded ballots. Also some complications of, of people being asked to provide ID, uh, which of course is not a legal requirement in Massachusetts. The overarching um, sort of sentiment from folks both up in New Hampshire and in Massachusetts was, it's over, I made my decision, and let's just move forward. Cassandra, how about you? You were at polling places in Connecticut. Were you seeing some of the same problems, hearing some of the same things as Shannon? Yeah, actually, the polls also opened very early. I was in New Haven uh, at one of the downtown locations where they were open at six in the morning and the lines wrapped around the block outside of the city hall building. And we also saw that people were experiencing delays just because of the volume of everybody trying to get this thing over with. I don't think there is as much excitement as there was relief. As Shannon said, the election's finally over. But at quite a few polling locations, there was some confusion. One of the locations I went to in New Haven had two different wards voting in the same building, and there weren't enough people to direct voters to the proper line to go vote for their respective wards. So these are wards, different parts of the city, but both voting at the same polling location. Exactly. Um, One of the men I talked to at a polling location in New Haven had said that the lines were super long because people were going into the wrong lines. And this guy, Warren Supernautis, is describing... um, why the confusion was happening and how he was frustrated by it. A lot of people were in the wrong line. I got in the right line, which is Ward 9, because I asked the police officers and they directed me. My daughter was in the wrong line, Ward 10. And Ward 10 was a very long line. Very long line. They're still waiting. So people were ending up having to wait two and a half hours in the morning to vote when they could have just walked up to their actual proper um, voting precinct line. Was there a feeling of, yes, I'm, I'm glad that I'm here, or was there some unease throughout the course of the day? 
there is a bit of unease. I think people were relieved once they did get to vote, but they weren't necessarily excited about their choices. A lot of people told me they were just choosing the lesser of two evils, and quite a few people were reluctant to share who they thought that was. You said that it was a little different in the city of New Haven, which is predominantly Democratic, has been for a very, very long time. When you went out to the suburbs, a place where there's a little bit more of a mixed electorate, people were a little bit more unwilling to tell you how they were going to vote. Right. There were a lot of Clinton supporters who were eager to share that that's who they were voting for in New Haven. But I went a little further north in Hamden, which is still um, Democratic, but it's an older demographic and a lot more people who, you know, maybe worked in industrial jobs. And a lot of those folks were reluctant to talk to me. They definitely didn't want to tell me who they voted for. Of course, in, in Connecticut, Shannon, there weren't any other really important, big, close races You were talking to voters in two places, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, where there were a lot of really interesting ballot questions, where there were some very, very tight races, and of course, the overlay of the Trump-Clinton race. What did people tell you about what animated them to go to the polls? So in Massachusetts, uh, many of the folks were driven to the polls, at least many of the folks I spoke with, were motivated to get to the polls for the presidential election. But as you mentioned, there were plenty of of very sort of contentious and hard-fought ballot questions on the the ballot in Massachusetts, including the legalization of recreational marijuana, which, of course, we know passed by a margin of 53 percent. There's, of course, plenty to be done in terms of augmenting the legislation to set up regulations and, and, and a taxing infrastructure and things of that nature. I have to be honest, though, I didn't hear a lot of folks talk about the ballot questions when I spoke with them about why they were uh, coming out to vote today or how it felt to vote today. You know, specifically in Massachusetts, I I, I really did hear a lot of people saying that the the, uh, presidential campaign is what brought them out. And they had strong feelings about it and, and they wanted to have their voice heard and they wanted to get it over with and they wanted to move on. Shannon Dooling is a reporter for WBUR in Boston. She was covering polling places in both New Hampshire and Massachusetts for us here on Next. Shannon, thanks so much. Thanks, John. And Cassandra Bessler, before I let you go, you weren't just at the polling places. You did one of those really traditional polling night events where you'd go to a celebration of someone who you knew was going to win. Uh, Richard Blumenthal is a very popular uh, senator in Connecticut. He's a Democrat. And I guess I'm wondering what you took away from an event where Uh, a very popular politician of a party that had a really bad night, what that was like and what he was saying on a night with Hillary Clinton, somebody he he worked very hard to get elected and she didn't, what he was saying about that. Well, he gave his speech around nine. And at that point, the polls were still in Clinton's favor. So he kind of ended his speech saying he's so confident that the Democrats were not only going to succeed, you know, the Connecticut representatives were going to stay um, in the House and Senate, But he also thought that Clinton was going to win and that the Senate might turn Democrat. So the tone of the night kind of died down. The later I stayed, I think I left around 11 p.m. And that's when things started to look bleak for the Clinton campaign. Um, And you could tell that the folks there at the party were a little more subdued than they would have been otherwise. Cassandra Bassler is a reporter for WSHU Public Radio, and they're based in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, Cassie, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. Massachusetts ballot question two, which would have allowed for 12 new charter schools to open each year, was the most expensive in the state's history, about $40 million spent on both sides. It was the most expensive ballot measure in the entire country this year.
It was roundly rejected by voters in both urban and rural parts of the Commonwealth. If you haven't been paying close attention, you might wonder why such a hard battle was being fought over charter schools in a state with such a strong reputation for public education. For some analysis, we'll turn to Max Larkin. He's been covering the debate over question two for Edify at WBUR. Max Larkin, welcome to Next. Thank you. But before we get into what exactly happened with this ballot question, let's go back and and understand what was exactly on the ballot. What were Massachusetts voters voting on? They were voting on the proposal to um, lift the cap, the statewide cap, on the number of Commonwealth charter schools that are allowed to open or expand each year by 12 each year. Um, and so that, that was really the crux of the proposal in question two. It, it seems like the sort of policy issue that might be best settled by a state legislature. So how exactly did it get on a, a ballot question? Yeah, the legislature can be seen as kind of the big issue here. They had an opportunity to resolve this matter um, in the form of a bill back in March of this year. And the compromise legislation that they came up with would have provided for expanding the number of charter schools that would be allowed to operate. But they'd also tied certain restrictions. They barred charter operators from expanding if they suspended more than the, the sending district's average number of students. Or, or And they also included a provision to have parents and teachers be, they had to have a spot for parents and teachers on charter school boards. And um, charter school advocates, including Governor Baker, uh, thought that that was a little too strict. And they decided on the more aggressive language and to put it to a vote. Everything we read is that Massachusetts has some of, if not the best, public schools in the country. So why was it so important for the proponents of this question to get this uh, to a ballot question and, and try to get it passed this year? We have some of the best performing district schools, but we all we also have some of the best performing charter schools. And I think that charter advocates, not just in the state of Massachusetts, but down in New York and across the country, saw this as an opportunity to establish that even high performing systems can rely on charter schools as an innovative part of their education portfolio, so to speak. And I think part of your your answer just there maybe gets to my next question, which is, why did so much money flow into this? Was it because really powerful interests from outside the state decided to spend money trying to get this passed? Yeah, our reporting shows that 70% of the money in support of Question 2 came from a group called Families for Excellent Schools. They're a very powerful, what they call a dark money organization based in New York, and they've played a huge role down in New York politics. They sent uh, many millions of dollars into this fight. And because of their tax filing status, we don't know quite who made those original contributions. So tell us a little bit more about how charter schools actually work in the Commonwealth. Uh, what percentage of, say, kids from, from Boston are applying to charters and, and how many students overall that the system serves? So an average district can only spend under this cap 9% of their net school spending on charter schools, but the lowest performing 10% of districts, the the cap size doubles, so they can spend up to 18%. That means in a a school district of about 50,000 students, you get 10, 12, 14,000 students at most going to charter schools. That's about the case in, in Boston. But there are many, many municipalities, towns and cities that have scarcely any students enrolled in charter schools, including in the wealthy suburbs where the public schools are are more highly regarded. And the thing that was coming from the governor's office and the other advocates who were trying to pass this measure was that there's a big, long waiting list. People really want to get into these schools, right? 
Yeah, that would appear to be the case. There's certainly, in my reporting, I discovered a lot of uh, enthusiasm and impatience among parents who wanted to see their kids in charter schools because they'd heard about the better outcomes at some of those schools. So you hear a number, you heard a number a lot in TV ads, 33,000 students on the waiting list, which is, is kind of staggering. But some reporting would say that that number may be a little squishy um, for a number of reasons. Um, charter schools continue to count people who've been on the waiting list for more than one year. They may count people who are happily enrolled in another district or charter school, and they may count people who are waiting for seats that they themselves won't fill, that empty mid-year. So there have been estimates that it, it may be as low as half that or even lower. And Boston Public Schools advocates, it's important to note, would call attention to the fact that there are uh, more than 10,000 students waiting for Boston Public School administered pre-K, and there are six or 7,000 students on the Boston Public Schools wait list. But as you said before, the charter schools that do exist in Massachusetts are seen to be successful. Do you have a sense of just how successful they are, how the test scores match up for charter school students uh, who are able to attend in the Commonwealth versus those who attend public schools? The charter schools in the Boston area have the reputation, backed by some research from MIT, for being very high performing compared to the national average. Some of that research shows that math test scores are increased by 25% of a standard deviation, which is seen as a statistically significant margin after one year of charter schooling, and English and language arts is improved by 15% over that same period. Many voices in the education reform community really see these charter schools as the jewel in the crown of the national system, and, and there was a lot of praise for them in advance of this vote. So obviously there's a a bit of a rift between people who want to see more money put into the traditional public school system and people who believe that investments in the charter school system would make Massachusetts already good schools even better. So why do you think that this measure went down by such a large margin? It seems like a, a pretty narrowly contested issue, one that a lot of money was spent on, but this measure got uh, fairly soundly defeated. It certainly did. And the way that it felt out in the polling places was that in the end, people were persuaded that charter schools, which can really only serve a fraction at any given time of Massachusetts public school, school age students, that committing to them in such a broad way would result in maybe an intolerable amount of pain for the traditional district schools, particularly in Boston. And who was behind the organized effort on the no side? Who who was really rallying to make sure that this ballot question did not get passed? Uh, that's an interesting question. Certainly, nearly all of the funding, 99.5%, came from local and national teachers unions who are really vociferous opponents of charter schools for reasons we could get into. Um, but Certainly, it it had a little bit more of a grassroots feeling out on the street. Definitely public school teachers, students, and parents wearing the yellow colors of the no on to save our public schools campaign were a bit more present in the waning days of the campaign than the people representing great schools, Massachusetts, which was the prominent pro-charter organization. I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the NAACP role in calling for a moratorium on the expansion of, of schools, specifically having to do with segregation. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Both the NAACP and Black Lives Matter came out in opposition to more charter schools, and NAACP formally called for a moratorium, which was surprising to a lot of people given that charter schools have been seen as gateways to better outcomes for students of color. 
But certainly there have been a lot of people across the country um, who have raised an eyebrow at the optics of charter schools. They're schools where the discipline can be slightly more harsh, the days can be longer, students can be asked to be silent in the hallways or wear uniforms, and largely white faculties can preside over largely black and Latino student bodies. But some reporting in the Boston Globe and elsewhere has suggested that, particularly with really high-performing Boston charter schools, that parents do feel comfortable with even language like separate but equal. It's surprising in some ways, given how much fighting we've had, particularly in this city, about that very issue. It sounds to me, Max, like this isn't a settled issue. Maybe this uh, ballot question went down, but the effort to expand charter schools in Massachusetts is probably one that's going to continue, especially given the support that outside interests and the governor have in this. I, I guess I wonder what this means for Governor Charlie Baker, a very popular governor there, but also someone who threw quite a bit of his weight behind a measure that, again, went down to defeat pretty soundly. Yeah, it could be seen as the first substantial reproach for Governor Baker, who is widely liked in the state. He had associations with the Pioneer Institute, which was a right-leaning think tank that has long supported charter schools in the state. And he he certainly put his back into yes on two, only to be defeated last night. He had said about a month ago that he would feel sick if the um, municipalities that rely and approve most of charter schools, which is to say these seven to nine cities and towns that have pretty high charter populations, voted yes, and then the suburbs and towns that don't have charter populations voted no. That isn't what the voting data tells us. In fact, towns like Lawrence and Lowell that have struggled with their traditional public schools still voted handily no on the matter, and really only the wealthy suburbs and parts of Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard voted yes. Max Larkin, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, we'll go to Vermont to hear the story of one of the largest elm trees in New England, and we'll meet a blues musician from Portland, Maine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Starting in the early part of last century, the country started to lose millions of stately elm trees. These were victims of Dutch elm disease, a fungal disease carried by an invasive insect. Now one of the largest remaining elms in New England has died, but this isn't an obituary story. Instead, it's a story about the second life that this tree will lead. VPR's Kathleen Masterson has our story. Come over here, you can see kind of the real width of this thing. There is one little sprout right here. I'm hoping uh, we can save and transplant. It might have the same genes as Big Mama here. That's homeowner David Garrett in Charlotte, Vermont, earlier this fall. He's pointing to a leafy little seedling a few feet tall, sprouting out of the base of Big Mama. 
The massive slippery elm is 109 feet tall, and it towers far above the home it's shaded for over 200 years. But last year, the tree died. So now, about 25 friends, neighbors, and conservationists have gathered to honor the tree and give it one last hug before it's taken down. We have no idea how long it's been here, but it's been here longer than the house, and this was built around 1790, 1792, so it's at least that old. And uh, it's a shame we're losing this. Standing under the bare branches of the elm, Garrett addresses a small group on a sunny fall day. The largest uh, elm tree, as far as we know, uh, in the northeast. So, Anyway, we're here to say goodbye and uh, make something good out of it. Soon, a cherry picker with a chainsaw will take down the tree, first limb by limb and then the trunk itself. That last bit using a specialized eight-foot chainsaw and a massive crane. This isn't a regular tree removal process. Garrett, himself an amateur woodworker, specifically sought out a way to save the tree from being turned into firewood. Garrett explains that he started calling around to find someone who could craft something out of a tree this massive. And they said, yeah, there's some guy in Bristol. I never heard of him. So I searched him out and called him up, and he was here within an hour. (laughs) And he said, wow. John Monks is the guy from Bristol. He owns and runs Vermont Tree Goods, which makes handcrafted wooden furniture out of large diameter trees that are generally considered useless. Ordinary lumber mills simply don't have machinery big enough to handle such huge trees. But Monks has designed and built his own chainsaw rig that can easily mill trees 10 feet in diameter. He says he'll be able to make all kinds of things from the slippery elm in Garrett's yard. You know, it's a massive tree. There's a variety of limbs, branches, the main trunk, etc. So I, I see everything from the smallest, you know, coasters to cutting boards to, to benches, coffee tables, dining room tables, conference tables, um, who knows what else. Monks will donate a part of the proceeds to the Nature Conservancy's efforts to breed elm trees that are resistant to Dutch elm disease. David Garrett's record tall tree is a slippery elm. It's not as common as its cousin the American elm, and it has less cathedral-like arching. Yet both native species play a key role in the ecosystem by providing shade for rivers and leafy food for insects, and both are being wiped out by Dutch elm disease. That's what likely killed Garrett's tree. Forest ecologist Christian Marks heads up a project that is working on breeding disease-resistant trees. So far, he has bred some that are fairly resistant when exposed to Dutch elms disease in his lab. Those individuals are cloned and then planted in the wild. You're acting like a dating service where you're bringing different tolerant types together in a place where they can reproduce and spread, um, and then natural selection can select for even more tolerant offspring. To date, the Nature Conservancy has planted close to 3,000 tree seedlings in sites across New England, just under half the ultimate goal. Back at David Garrett's house, it's time to take down the tree. The crowd of neighbors and local conservationists head over to give the tree a last hug and to glide on the swing that's been there so long its ropes are ingrown into a low-hanging limb. Then the cherry picker raises up into its branches and a crew member gets to work. That's VPR's Kathleen Masterson reporting. You can see pictures of this gigantic tree at nextnewengland.org and send us pictures of your favorite large tree at Next New England on our Facebook page. Next, we're going to head to Maine to meet an award-winning songwriter, blues guitar player, and storyteller. 
my name is Samuel James, and I'm a modern songster. This is a story about one-eyed Katie. She's all woman, but not one bit lady. It's carrying on this tradition of like black musical storytellers. It's not limited to, but including the blues. Just one eye, that's all she has. She don't see so good, but she don't look so bad, no. I think that a lot of times people are excited about, you know, a young black guy playing this kind of music because black people don't play this music anymore. I think blues is, is almost strictly just about, just about love and heartbreak. Um, and it's usually about the narrator's heartbreak. My baby left me, my baby treats me so mean, my baby, 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 that kind of stuff. Please, 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 like James Brown, you know. And I just don't have a lot of songs about that, so I wouldn't call myself a blues man because that's not what I'm singing about. Well, now I'm gonna buy me a wooden tombstone, tall and wide as any tree, and they'll carve it down to a likeness of you. Looking down over me. I grew up kind of all over Maine, mostly in uh, in Biddeford. You grow up in a white place, you gotta go to school, you gotta be the only black kid, you gotta hear nigger. I remember this one day when I came home from school. It was the first time anybody called me nigger. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, they sure did, but I didn't. So my father thought it was really important for me to be armed because he knew it would be it would be a tough fight, you know. So once I hit about eight, once about that nigger thing happened, he thought it was important that I learned the piano because... You know, there was going to be energy that needed to be gotten out of me in some way. And I think he didn't really want me to be like a street fighting man, you know, especially if he's the only black kid in town. So he always thought that intellectual pursuits would, would be best. Big black men came into town and there weren't no other black folks around, but he stuck around. I think that this is true, but I think that everybody has, like, a song that kind of follows them around, that pops up at kind of, like, poignant times for them. Uh, for me, that song is The Midnight Special uh, by Lead Belly, and it's sort of the first song I remember my father singing, just sort of as he's, like, cleaning up the house, like, in his bathrobe and his boxer shorts, just picking up trash or whatever, and folding laundry, just singing The Midnight Special. different points, you know, women left me or fired from a job or different points like that, you know, this song pops up. So um, I went to Ireland, uh, running away from my problems, and I'm walking down the street and there's this uh, street musician sitting and he's got this little electric amp that he's sitting on with a little electric guitar plugged into it and he's, uh, he's playing the Midnight Special. I think that was it. That was, the, that was the big moment for me where I was like, he's playing Midnight Special. He's playing Muddy Waters. He's playing, you know, Johnny Hooker. And I love to hear these songs, you know, and if I could play the guitar, I could hear these songs anytime I want. Not only that, I could tell these stories, and I was a short story writer before this, and I could tell something that was culturally relevant, culturally important. And I think that, in essence, kind of like adding up all of these things that I've been learning my whole life, you know. Whoa, and kind of down the railroad spikes. Me sitting here, being from this place and picking this point of time and saying, here I am, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I want to market myself doing, but I don't want to be marketing the old buck and shuffle, you know, like, I'm playing this music and it's a legitimate, true, in my opinion, you know, 
form of high art. I hear this all the time from audience members. It's like, yeah, you know, my buddy told me to come down and I wasn't gonna because I don't like blues, but I really liked you. You know, so it's like that idea of like, this is blues and people have a perception of what that is. And almost nine out of ten times, it doesn't include me. Even though, like if you were to take quote unquote blues, this is pretty much the purest form of it. Well, if it comes, what's it While being this young black band playing this kind of music has gotten me in front of all of these people, all of these people look at me as <laughs> the young black guy who's playing blues. You know, it's just, it's, it's this ironic loop, you know. So the very same thing that got me to where I am and getting to, to this point career-wise has now begun to hinder me in this way where, you know, people see me as like this kind of Robert Johnson-y character. It's a bit more of a fight to try to get my ideas across to the audience who shows up and they're all sort of dressed like Robert Johnson. And it's like kind of a, like a, a costume show or something. And there's something kind of kitschy about what I'm doing or cute in some way. And I think there's a want for people to do, you know, Robert Johnson songs and, and for and Sunhouse songs. And, and uh, But I think that they can't be it, you know. They can't be it. What if rock and roll was only the Beatles and only the Rolling Stones? And only Led Zeppelin. And all rock could do was cover those guys. I mean, we'd be lacking a lot today, you know? So to me, it just seems like these guys, these old original guys, they were fantastic songwriters, and that's fantastic. But how come people can't write new stuff? Well, I think they can, and I'm going to do it. That portrait of Samuel James was produced by Shane Perry at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies back in 2009. We caught up with James earlier in the week to see how he and his music have been progressing over the past seven years. He told us about his new album, The Already Home Recordings, and his web series, Kitty Critic. <laughs> What's changed for me in the past seven years? Um, I don't know. I guess I continue to play music. I continue to tour. Uh, I've started writing a lot more publicly. That's changed. I have a web series called Kitty Critic, and it's uh, it features the... It's supposed to basically just feature the original music in Portland, and the premise is it's uh, Portland musicians performing in their fans' homes for their fans' cats. It's difficult now just with the way people consume music. It, the, the, way, the way you sell it can't really be the same. It has to reflect that in some way. It has to reflect the way it's per consumed in some way. Normally, if you, you spend like, I don't know, you spend a year on an album, it's released two weeks later, no one cares anymore. <laughs> it runs its course. It's just, uh, it's almost disposable. So I figured if I did something, if I changed something this way, um... It could stay, it could stay kind of relevant, as relevant as it, as it can be, uh, the entire time, um, for a year. And then if I like it, and it works out, and people like it, then I can just continuously do it. Um, it wouldn't have to necessarily be in an album format. Uh, my father's black and my mother's white, and I always knew on the black side of my family that music, uh, 
existed as far back as anybody can trace it, like everybody's a musician. And then I found out um, recently, over the last year, that my on my white side, that my great-grandfather uh, was a fiddler in the Spanish-American War, like an Appalachian-style fiddler. So I didn't realize that I had this, this other musical uh, tradition in my family. So I decided what I would do for songs for this album is I would take... I would release three songs. It would be one black traditional, one white traditional, and one original. And I would try to use the influences of each style on the other. So I would try to play blues influence on the white traditional and white traditional influence on the blacks on the black traditional song. Um, and it's called Already Home, the Already Home Recordings, because uh, while I'm recording them in my home, I like the idea of home recordings for this style of music. Um, and you know, it's, it's personal about my home, about my family. more from Samuel James at therealsamueljames.com and at our website, nexttonewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Imaraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. Mm-hmm.